You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. All right, Sixers fans, welcome to a new episode of Sixers Daily. I'm your host, Jazz Kang. Before we jump into things, as always, just a reminder, subscribe to the Liberty Ballers Podcast Network. You can catch us wherever you get your fix. And, of course, check us out at LibertyBallers.com. The Sixers do to be picking at number 23. That's coming up just over two weeks from now at the NBA Draft. Also have some decisions to make with the roster. Some tough decisions to make coming up June 29th. That's a big day in terms of the James Harden stuff. Also July 1st. Going to talk about that with Mr. Jackson. Frank Jackson, it's been a couple of weeks. We haven't really talked. How have things been going for you? Uh, things are good. You know, the season's starting to wind down. Obviously, you know, I cover the Sixers as part of my job but i cover the league as a whole so i've still got stuff to do but uh but yeah you know trying to slowly shift in off-season mode with still you know some focus on the finals and you know the conference finals you know last couple of weeks but uh but yeah no complaints here just looking forward to yeah i guess everything that comes with the next next few months whether it's six years later or just nba in general yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be busy here through the through the finals we'll jump into some of that talk as well and i wanted to talk about a couple of players in particular that were on the Sixers last season. One of them looks like he'll be back. One of them doesn't. We'll jump into the one who doesn't first. That's Mr. Danny Green. Obviously suffered that uh, ACL, LCL injury. It'll keep him out for quite some time uh, through next season. Looking at this from a Sixers perspective, right? You're looking at a guy like Danny Green, who has been a very good NBA player for a long time now. He's 34, turning 35 in a couple of weeks. Looking at what he did with the Sixers and the season that he had overall, he was quite up and down, didn't, Again, at his age, not really expecting a ton from him, but average just under six points per game, his lowest since his second year in the league, which was 2010-2011. Still shot the ball pretty well at 38%, but his contract in a bit of a weird predicament with that is Daryl Morey because you're looking at this. His contract becomes fully guaranteed on July the 1st. Obviously going to be tough to commit $10 million to a a guy and, and fill out a roster spot who won't be around throughout, like I said, much of the season, depending on his recovery. But if you're looking at waving green or bringing him back, and obviously you get a little bit more wiggle room in terms of financially with the salary cap. But when you look at Danny Green and, and given all the things that I just laid out, where do you think he fits in the Sixers plans? Like, is he somebody you look at and want to bring back just because of his veteran presence? He played pretty well overall in the playoffs too. He was inconsistent, but again, shot the ball above 40% in the postseason. His scoring average went up by a few points. But when you look at what he brings, is that something you think Daryl Morey should entertain the idea of bringing him back? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah, you know, from a basketball perspective, I think, it, you know, it's, it's a little hazier. But um, I, I think it's also an important thing to, you know, manage, manage relationships and, and all that. But, um, yeah, I, I think, like, and I'm not a salary cap expert, so I'm not entirely sure what, the ramifications would be like what they would open up necessarily if they decide to, uh, you know, not, not, not guarantee that, that deal. 
Um, but I think Danny's clearly a guy that people in the locker room respect. I think he's been a, a tremendous boost to this this team the last couple of years. Even even though you know, year one was a lot better, um, I thought you know by the season's end, I, as you mentioned, Jazz it was up and down. But I thought um, you know when it mattered most, for the most part, he was he was quite useful um, from about late from early April onward, which is important. Obviously, that's kind of what the Sixers' goals are always going to be is you know mid April you know moving forward. So. Um, I, I think it makes sense to bring him back. And I know this is probably him doing some wishful thinking, but I know he talked, you know, at some point shortly after he, you know, suffered an injury on his podcast that he was thinking he could be back around February or you know, maybe early March. And, um, you know, that's, that's obviously it was a long ways away. I'm, I'm sure that's, I know it means a guarantee at, at this stage of the rehab or recovery, but, um, I think if you can get him back by mid February, early March, and you get, you know, five or six weeks to tune him up and have the right postseason. Um, that would make sense too. There's, there's also some wings on the free agency, you know, market that I think could to a degree supplement what Danny brings. And then if you have both of them in the fold for the last couple of months, then I think you're in a good spot. So I would bring Danny back, but again, I don't know exactly what it might open up from a mid-level exception, what it might do to the, the luxury tax, because obviously there's about a $4 million gap usually between the mid-fold and mid-level and the taxpayer mid-level. It's about 6 million versus 10 million, um, which is you know pretty substantial there. So um, if it opened up the, the mid-level, then I would understand maybe a little more hesitancy to bring Danny back. Um, regardless of the injury, honestly, I think, you know, there's, you know, I think it would make sense if he wasn't injured to retain him, but I also see, you know, given the mercurial nature of his year two, that even if he wasn't injured, you might have a little bit of reservation about, you know, retaining him at that $10 million price point, I believe is what he's at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so short answer is, yeah, I'd bring Danny back, but long answer is it's a little more complicated. I would still side toward retaining him, but I understand even independent of the injury, if you might look elsewhere for some, for another sort of, you know, three and D guy, uh, you know, on the free agency uh, market. Yeah. Looking at that. I mean, it does make a little bit of a difference there, Jackson, in terms of the finances for the Sixers, because if, and it actually actually is pending on what happens with James Harden as well. If Harden picks up his full $47.4 million player options, what happens is what happens at that point is regardless of what happens with green, um, they're not going to be able to use, the non-taxpayer mid-level exception, which, as you mentioned, is about 10.3. Um, and But if, if they Harden agrees to an extension, opts in for around $40 million, give or take, you know what I mean, depending on, on what the Sixers work out there, and they waive Danny Green, then they'll have access to both the $10.3 million and the biannual $4.1 million, which gives you a lot more ammo to add some specific pieces. Another guy I wanted to talk about with you, Jackson, you mentioned Danny Green, because I'm, I'm of the opinion of at $10 million, tough to want to commit to that if you can get a guy who's going to be around for 82 games, as you mentioned, somebody potentially who can fill in as a 3 and D guy and give you a little bit more athleticism. Because as good as Danny Green has been defensively throughout his career, uh, took a little bit of a hit last season, and and we've seen him, and I think that's just more to do with age, not to do with the ability of, of the player in terms of his smarts and his skill level. But when you look at Shake Milton, here's another guy too who Again, up and down, but still a pretty decent option off the bench when you look at the NBA as a whole, put up just over eight points a game. He played 21 minutes uh, a night on average throughout the 55 games he suited up for. When you look at a player like Shake, the club option for him, just under $2 million. Obviously, again, given the fact that the Sixers need to squeeze value out of pretty much every dollar they're going to have under the cap, where do you think he fits into the team's plans? He's going to be... um, Turn in 26 next season when you come turn in 26 actually in a few months. But when you look at 
what he brings to the table and what he bought last season. And, and you remember he did actually play pretty well against Miami overall in, in the, in that series, especially over the last few games, giving the Sixers some much needed offense. When you look at his fit, is he somebody that you would hesitate to bring back if you were Dale Morey? No, I think, you know, especially at that $2 million price point, I mean, the chances of like finding a potential rotation guard, you know, you know, with, without that. And I know that, you know, it's not just $2 million and other ramifications open up, you know, from go from four to five or six to seven, like that with some of their, their exceptions they have, you know, available to them. But I think like shake is a guy that still ideally fills a pretty useful role as a third or fourth guard, probably closer to a fourth guard on, you know, a title, a title contender. Um, but I still think there's something there, you know, we've talked, I'm sure we've talked extensively about it at times, whether it's with you or someone, you and someone else in the podcast, like she gets such kind of a weird up and down year with that back injury that kept him out for a while. The ankle injury to open the year. So I think, you know, the hope would be that a full off season and in a full year to just stay healthy and figure out his surroundings on a new team, um, could do wonders. I know it's been back-to-back years of a little bit of inconsistency and maybe some frustration after that great 2020, but I just think it's worth bringing him back. Um, maybe the jumper, you know, catches fire again. I know he came into the league as Harold is a pretty good shooter, and we saw that in year two, and then not much since then, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I bring back Shake. I, I think you know, you're just like I think he could still be a, a solid fourth guard on you know the title caliber iteration of of the Sixers era. Um, but I do think you would want to look to kind of supplement him. I don't think you want him as your first guard off the bench, and that's where he started to run into some issues. But um, I do like the potential of Shake and really kind of refine a little bit of his off-ball game, a little more quick decision-making off the catch, um, you know, just limit his limit his pull-up game to an extent besides maybe some of those short runners and whatnot. Um, that you've got a pretty useful offensive player there. Um, but I do understand some of the hesitancies and, and kind of the worries about retaining him, but I'd still lean toward it. But you definitely want to see a little more improvement from, from the last couple of years, I think, overall from him. Yeah, you look at that, and you mentioned that 2019-20 season where you know he averaged better than 14 points, and look at wow, the Sixers got themselves a, a pretty damn good option here. And uh, we've seen him struggle since then. You mentioned the back injury. Uh, Doc Rivers mentioned that during training camp that he was dealing with that, and then that kind of bled over into the season, and he's dealing with uh, some ankle stuff, some knee stuff. When when you look at him right now, the current place he's in in his career, as I mentioned, you know, going on on 26 years old. And tough to say, he was a second-round pick, you know, coming out in, in 2018. So it's not like he was this heralded player who, who had all this hype around him coming in. But when you look at him now two years removed from having that, that solid season, as you mentioned, when you look at him, like, do you think there's a way he can get back to being that productive? Or is what we're seeing now from Shake pretty much, well, what he is? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think it kind of you know it date it, it stems back to some of the areas of improvement that I talked about is being a little more decisive off the catch. Um, he had the ball in his hands a lot more in that second year, and uh, you know shot the ball pretty well off the dribble. And I think teams are still kind of getting adjusted to this new player as a key part of the team. Um, but it seems like teams can kind of get into his handle now. They can use use physicality against him a little bit, speed him up, get in the spots he's not comfortable at, um, at least when he's creating for himself. But off you know. As a, as a guy who's, you know, working from the second side and, you know, spot up threes, shot fakes into drives and stuff like that. Um, it just requires him to be a little more decisive, I think. I, I think he has a tendency to want to all, often put the ball on the deck when, it, when, the, when things swing his way, whereas I think you've got to be a little more, 
you know, willing to let it fly. And part of it too, shake has a fairly low or slow, not low, slow release. And so even if he has space, that, that defense, the defender of those, that defense in general can kind of be running at him and he, he kind of sees that and he fought, tries to find something else to do. But um, yeah, so I think the two things would just be decisiveness off the catch and also maybe trying to speed up to release a little bit as a spot up guy. Uh, I don't know how feasible th- those things are. Um, I think something that Shake's done pretty well the last couple of years or just in his career is kind of identify areas to grow and generally accomplish them. Um, at least, you know, from year one, between years one and two, and then years two and three, I thought he did pretty well in that. Um, I, I still thought, you know, after last year, you kind of being more decisive was something you should look to address. Maybe he did and it didn't manifest, but um, that would be another, that would kind of be the, the prevailing hope again, is he can be a little more snappy off the catch and really kind of, integrate into that off ball scoring role, you know, play alongside a Maxi or a, a Harden or even an MB, depending on how, you know, the Sixers end up staggering things next season. Yeah. And that's where I think that they have to improve upon. Right. I mean, and given the fact that they're so top heavy, especially in terms of contracts with, with Joel, James Harden, obviously his new deal uh, going to take, go into effect next season. You have Joel Embiid, and then you got to get some guys who are a little bit cheaper. You know what I mean? And you have to find some value from either veterans who are signing for the minimum at around 1.8, or we mentioned the, the non-taxpayer mid-level. You also have the, like they got to find some talent to fill in behind those. So, I mean, let's just say hypothetically here, Jackson, that the Sixers do add, you know, a, a guard, they, they maybe managed to trade Matisse before the draft for a first round pick from a team that's picking, you know, around 20 or, or towards the back end of the of the first round if is like where do you put the priority of improving upon shake milton or getting somebody who's better than him or do you look at him and say okay you know what if we're going with nine maybe ten guys you know typically you go around nine during the regular season does he fit into your top nine as is or do you make that a priority to say hey we need to add some more scoring depth we need a shooting guard uh slash point guard who can who can maybe you know bring the ball up and, and set the table up but when you look at that, like if you're Daryl Morey, how, how important is it, do you think, when you look at Shake's position specifically, that you either get an upgrade or you're pretty confident with saying, you know what, we like what he's bought over the first few years. Maybe if he gets a full season in and, and full offseason in terms of not dealing with injuries, that he can get back to being a plus player like he was throughout the first couple of seasons. Because even 2020, uh, 2020, 2021 season, he put up 13 points a game too, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, he was – he was so good for that first you know, month or so in 2021. Um, but yeah, I think with Shake, I mean, you're looking at if you just kind of plot out the rotation, uh, you know, you got your you got your big three of Harden, Maxi, and B, and then Tobias as well, I guess, you know, big four. Um, and then you're gonna have to find someone to fill Danny Green's role. It's just hypothetically say it's Matisse for now or someone in place of Matisse. You're gonna have George Niang still there, you're gonna have a backup center. So you're at seven there. I think ideally you would find someone else, you know, in free agency, you know, whatever you're using there with whether it's a taxpayer, the biannual, um, whatever it is, they're to add an eighth. And you're okay if Shake is your ninth man. Um, you know, you still have Furcon as well, but you're probably like it's not your plan A, if that makes sense, right? Like you're yeah, yeah. like you're like, yeah, like we like we still believe in Shake. We're not giving up on him. We still think he can be a ninth man in this league on a very good team, but we're definitely kind of looking for an upgrade, but it's not it's not our plan A to keep him there, but it's not, we're not on like a full out campaign to replace Sheik Milton as our ninth man either. So, um, you know, kind of right there in the middle, right. Uh, if that, if that all, if that all kind of, you know, checks out and it's easy to follow. So just, yeah, like you're okay with it, but you're not, you're, you're not rolling into the off season and saying our plan is for Sheik to be our ninth man. It's more of like, we'll look to upgrade but if we can't, 
we're not going to sacrifice a bunch of assets. We're not going to, you know, make our first our first move to like upgrade that spot with our tax pyramid level or for our full mid level, whatever it is. So um, yeah, it's just kind of a more of a content, but not satisfied. If you can, if I can differentiate there. No, I get you. And I, and I think, again, like, I, I think that's where Daryl Moore is going to have to make these interesting decisions throughout the off season. And, and like you said, like, okay, we're in a position where we're not going to have a ton of money and not a ton of flexibility to make moves. So they got to prioritize what they have on the roster. Like we've talked about this a ton throughout the season. And, and I'm sure we'll talk about it as decisions are made throughout the summer is the backup center spot, right? You, you don't need to be carrying five centers when you're barely playing two. So uh, again, I, I think making these moves and, and making the right decisions obviously on Daryl Morey's end is going to be imperative in terms of how he prioritizes upgrading the bench. Uh, Jackson, let's take a break here. I wanted to jump into a little bit of talk about Donovan Mitchell and also the NBA finals going into game three. We're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, this series going back East into Boston. So we'll do that coming up in about a minute. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we're back, Jackson. Wanted to touch on what's going on with the Utah Jazz, and we saw Quinn Snyder basically leave his post, you know, resigning from from the team and and moving on. A, a very good coach has has a great reputation um, around the league. When you look at him, and I, and I wanted to jump into some Donovan Mitchell stuff as well. When you look at Quinn Snyder compared to Doc Rivers, obviously looks like Doc is going to be back unless something crazy happens or or you know. Daryl Morey has a hard on for for Quinn Snyder the entire time that he's willing to he's willing to make that move. But when you when you look at this from your perspective, is that something the Sixers should look at? Is saying, hey, you know what? Let's try and bring in Quinn Snyder and and move on from Doc Rivers. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you know Quinn is very much a, a better coach than than Doc Rivers, especially from a you know creative creative offensive standpoint. Uh, I think that's kind of one of the, the qualms with Doc, right? One of the bigger ones, you know, at least from my vantage point, you know, talking, you know, from how I view things and then you're just talking to people that cover the team or even root for the team. Um, so I would definitely, I would definitely kind of prioritize that. But as you said, Jazz, it doesn't seem likely that that Doc is going to, uh, you know, be ousted, you know, unless, you know, Daryl has his heart set on, um, on Quinn Snyder. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, I mean, Utah's had a top, I think a top, the top offense the last couple of years. I don't know if they were top, if they were the top ranked offense two years ago, but they certainly were in the regular season this past year. Maybe they're top three. I know for most, most of the year they were um, there. It's just a lot of creativity. And I think it hasn't been like, they have, they've had good offensive personnel, but I don't think it's been like an overly dominant one. You've seen some, some of the, kind of some of the, the flaws manifest in the playoffs, but um, oh yeah, Utah still finished first in the regular season, but 
Um, but it's still like, it's, it's not, it's not an offense that you expect to lead the lead, lead the league in offensive rating in the regular season. Um, and I think, you know, the, the Sixers have some pretty enticing offensive players with Joel and Harden and Tobias and Maxi and, and even George Niang. So, uh, yeah, I would certainly target Quinn and you know, Quinn Snyder over, over, uh, over Doug. I do think he has some kind of rigidity that, you know, has been a, a longstanding, you know, criticism, justified criticism of Doc, but um, I think the hope would be that there's enough offensive kind of flexibility and ingenuity that um, maybe that rigidity wouldn't be as big of an issue where he's got, you know, an MVP caliber talent in, in Joel, where in Utah, his, his best player was, you know, whatever you want to call Gobert Mitchell, you know, a top 15, top 20 guy, which is a big difference versus a top five, six, top three, however you view Joel in that, in that regard. So uh, yeah, short answers. I would absolutely look to replace Doc with Quinn Snyder if that's, you know, even the cards, but as you said, doesn't seem as though it is. Do you think Doc has like some naked photos of Daryl Morey or something in a compromising position? Like, why is Daryl Morey so stuck on sticking with it? Because like, I mean, you look at the ownership, right? They were rumored to be in on buying the Denver Broncos for five billion dollars. So, like, uh, you know, paying a coach and and I, I'm, I'm always like this: if if something isn't working for a couple of years, you got to pull the plug, regardless of the cost, if you want to be a championship team. And, we saw the Warriors eat a large luxury tax bill, even though they were terrible that, that one year, the, the 2020 season, after Clay got hurt and Steph was hurt five games in. But, you know, their ownership of Joe Lacob and, and Bob Myers with, as their GM, they kind of figured things out. So when you look at, like, why is Daryl Morey and, and, and the Sixers really as an organization, why do you think they've been so committed to Doc Jackson? My, my read would be at least with Daryl. I know Daryl and Doc worked together in Boston, if I recall, um, because I think Daryl moved to Houston in 2007. Yeah, from there. Yeah. Uh, and Doc had been in, in Boston. I think he was there for about a decade, uh, maybe a little longer. But uh, that would be my understanding is that just like, I don't know, like, regardless of the profession, you probably have some level of comfort working when you have a history with someone and you enjoy that. Um, but it does strike me just given kind of you know, the way that Daryl has seemed to kind of value head coaching and his basketball philosophy is that Doc wouldn't necessarily align with that. But, hey, you know, work relationships and, you know, and whatnot maybe trump that. So um, that's my read. But, it, again, it does – it is a little perplexing just based on kind of the things that we know about Maury and what he likes to value. It doesn't necessarily seem with what Doc would. But, uh, yeah, it, it's tough to know. But, yeah, it certainly does not seem as though um, that Doc is is the answer to bring this team to a title. And – uh, you know, Daryl's talked about the title being the goal, but so maybe he, I, I assume he feels differently about it and I don't have a great answer for it, but that would be my, my inference that is you know, completely unfounded. Jackson, sticking with the Utah jazz topic, you know, we talked a little bit there about Quinn Snyder moving on his availability. When you look at Donovan Mitchell, he's been one of the top, I would, wouldn't hesitate to say maybe 15 or 20 players in the, in the NBA over the past few seasons, obviously has not had a ton of playoff success. We've heard a lot about the friction he has with, with Rudy Gobert. When you look at his availability and I, f- I forget the, uh, the reporter's name, but he suggested maybe the Sixers as a potential trade partner for Donovan Mitchell, as long as they include a guy like Tyrese Maxey, um, you could figure something out there. But again, this would take a lot of moves on the Sixers part, Donovan Mitchell, uh, slated to earn 30 million next season that escalates up to 37 in the final year of his contract, which is 2025, 20, 26. When you look at potentially trying to figure out a move to bring him over, is that something you think is feasible? You think the Sixers should actually try and entertain that option, even if it includes Tyrese Maxey? 
Yeah, I mean, it's 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 tough to know exactly what would be, you know, because obviously Maxi would be the centerpiece. I, I would I would include Maxi from Mitchell. I understand some hesitancies, whether it's a sentimental thing or or whatnot. But I think from an on-court value perspective, getting a top 25 guy can certainly, you know, roughly, I don't even know, you, you could say top 15, top 20, top 25. Um, it's a pretty jumbled tier there, I think, overall. Um, to pair with Harden and Bede would be really, really nice. Because I think right now, you know, Maxi is a top, 60 ish guy top 70 i don't know exactly where you know i'd have to really i don't i don't wish to rank 60 mba yeah, yeah yeah that um, means you have too much time on your head yeah but i think he's he's, yeah. he's roughly an above average starter which you know makes him top 75 at worst um and he's very good and i could see him being a top 35 top 40 guy next year but there's still a gulf there between that and what mitchell is um and i think mitchell has an ability to handle a larger scoring volume from the perimeter than maxi right now just because i think he's a better passer little more comfortable pull-up shooter even if maxi's numbers are better in year two than mitchell's you know have been you know from deep and whatnot but um yeah i would at least entertain it but again it would be like what kind of draft picks are we talking who else is moving out you know i now the Sixers have a bunch of like young guys worth you know being steadfast on beyond maxi uh in those trade talks but it would just kind of you know what would that what would that do you know because you'd have to move tobias i imagine and and, and stuff like that. And I'm not saying like you shouldn't be willing to move Tobias, you know, for Donovan Mitchell or, you know, as a, as a you know, ripple effect move to open up space for Donovan Mitchell. But I just, it's just hard to know exactly. But on his face, I would be willing to part with Maxi, but I'm not, I'm not rushing to get him out of there. I think, you know, as soon as next year, the gulf could be much smaller than it currently is. But right now, there's still, you know, I thought Mitchell had a borderline all NBA season this year and Maxi had, you know, a borderline top 65 year, you know, despite Mitchell's you know, pretty rough playoff, you know, showing the series. He's, he's had a capacity for being quite good in the playoffs, especially in offense. And I think that's, you know, it's worth more than just the six games they played this year in the playoffs. So, um, yeah, I'd be willing to move Maxi, but I'm not rushing him out the door. And I understand if people feel otherwise, and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to put up much of a fight. I get that Maxi's growth curve is really enticing. And and there's also just, you know, as a fan, you know, for people, people who are a fan, and there's also some sentimental value. And I totally understand that too. Well, Jackson, I think that's the that's the interesting kind of dilemma for Daryl Morey, right? You're looking at you're looking at the window that you're going to have with Joel Embiid being a top level MVP candidate type player, where he's 28 years old, maybe two, three, four seasons left. Who knows? Depending, because he has such a, a vast injury history, and and I've said this a ton before, big men tend to age a lot worse than than the little guys in the, in the NBA. So if you're looking at that, and I think that's the hard part is weighing the fact that. Tyrese Maxey has all-star potential, right? Could make the all-star team next year, maybe a couple of years down the line. I'm with you. I don't think he'll ever be a top 10 or top 20 guy in the NBA, but certainly has all-star potential. And then you got Donovan Mitchell, a player who is obviously very, very good. He's only 25 years old himself. So if you're weighing the the, the short run versus the long run, it's like for Daryl, do you kind of have to put your chips into the middle of the table at this point to be like, hey, we want to try and win the title. We got a short window here to do it. You obviously have Harden, uh, who's on the downside of his career and you got Joel Embiid who's in the thick of his prime. Like what is that? Why do you think the, the Sixers would have any hesitation? I mean, and I'm not saying Donovan Mitchell's available. I'm not saying that's even close because as I mentioned before, you basically got to include Tobias Harris going to have to include Tyrese Maxey. Uh, maybe this year's first round pick, if you want to get a deal done because the Stepien rule, they don't have a whole lot of flexibility going forward. So when you look at that, like if, if you can get another star level guy, and I'm just throwing a hypothetical out there, let's just say Bradley Beal becomes available and says he wants out of Washington. Do you, would you be willing to give up Tyrese Maxey, even if it means you're getting two years of, of a prime all-star type guy? 
I think I think the reason you would have hesitation, you know, whether it's a fan, you know, member of the organization, would be like if I mean, Maxi is your last big route to landing that third star, whether it's him becoming it or you moving him in a deal to acquire one. And the question would be, is either of those guys good enough to be that championship third count, that that third star for you? Right? And is that the route you want to take? Do you need a third star? Would it be more more suitable to, you know, move off Tobias Harris and find some more complimentary players, you know, whether it's a little more, you know, more, a little more uh, like dynamism on the wing and athleticism on the wing and, and things like that. Or is it, you know, it, you know, is it like, do you need a little more floor space? And like, what do you like? How do, do you need more ball handling? So obviously you could get ball handling in the form of a star, but um, I think that would be the question, right? Is like, is this the proper route? Is Donald Mitchell good enough to be that guy in the next two or three years? Is Bradley Beal good enough? I would be much more hesitant to trade for Beal and in, in include Max than I would. And I know that's basically the only way you could get him. Then I would be to include Mitchell just because of the age disparity and, and the fact that like, you know, Beal had a, a down year this past season. I'm not saying that like that's the new norm for him, but um, I would be kind of worried about, you know, having two guys, um, you know, on the other side of 30 as kind of your building blocks around Joel versus a guy like Mitchell, as you said, he's still 25. I think he's still going to get better. I thought he made some strides this year and in kind of the way he found some passing reads and the way he paced himself in pick and rolls. So um, I'm not saying I wouldn't absolutely say, I'm not saying I wouldn't absolutely double negative. I'm not saying that I would refuse to include Maxi in a Beal deal, but I would have a lot more trepidation doing so than I would with Mitchell just because of the age difference in the respective seasons they just had. All right, Jackson, let's let's wrap up on this. And we're hoping we'll get to talk about the Sixers being there next season, the NBA Finals. I think, I'm hoping it's going to be a little bit closer as we, as we go forward. Although, I mean, again, the Sixers, or pardon me, the, the Celtics just killed the Warriors in the fourth quarter, 40 to 16. They outscored them in game one. Otherwise, Golden State well on the way to winning that game. Obviously, you saw the Dubs kill the Celtics in the third quarter of game two. Going into game three, which is tipping off about four hours uh, from now, which is when we're recording this, what do you what do you make out of the rest of this series? It's basically now first team to win best of five. Uh, who do you think is going to come on come out on top? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting debate because you know the the story thus far, obviously beyond beyond Draymond stepping up in game two. I mean, Steph's been great in both. Is kind of the supporting cast, right? You look at game one: Al Horford, Marcus Smart, Peyton Pritchard, Derek White, all very good in game one. They all, you know, kind of struggle. Jalen Brown, you know, he's more of a star than a supporting cast player, but all those guys, Jalen included, struggled in game two versus, you know, the Warriors, Demonte Bialitsa, Draymond Green, Kevon Looney, uh, Jordan Poole, Gary Payton, the second kind of return. I thought he was a much better presence than Andre Iguodala was in that kind of that defensive stopper cutter role. Um, so to me, I, I still like, I, I picked Boston to seven before the series began. I, I still like that pick. Um, I think Boston also tightened some things up about how, like, how did like the their drop coverage and their pick and roll defense against Steph has been pretty inconsistent. And when it's been good, Steph has had some issues, and when it's been bad, he's he's cooked them. Um, so I think kind of tightening that, but again, it'll be important how they solve the the Draymond Draymond on Jalen dilemma. It'll be interesting because. Uh, Jalen was so good, especially that to start that fourth quarter of game one about getting downhill, making stuff happen. I think uh, in game one, he had 18 drives, according to NBA.com, and game two only had six. That's a huge disparity. Um, how, like, 
Golden State did really well to kind of sag off of Boston's middling shooters in game two better than they didn't get like game one. I thought they were kind of a little too like, like they were too willing to do it. And then the passing is reusing. Those guys are professional NBA players. You can make threes in game two, though. They were a little more selective in it, clogging up passing lanes, making it harder. I thought you saw that reflected in the way Jason Tatum had 13 assists game one, three in game two. Um, so curious to kind of see how they manage that, but I still lean Boston, you know, I, I, after every game when I'll watch, I'll go kind of look through the box score and look at each player who was in the rotation and say like, how I think they played relative expectations and, and like, what was, what was the balance between them just struggling versus the defense and the offense doing the opposing offense and defense doing something well. And I thought the answer to that in game two was like a lot of golden saves players were really good and Boston's players were really bad. So uh, which is really rudimentary analysis, but I hope the the idea there is conveyed uh, properly. But uh, still in Boston, but I do definitely think they have a couple more questions to answer, but I've been really impressed with their adaptations throughout the postseason, and I, I trust them to remedy that moving forward. But I think if the tone of the game plays, plays out again like it did in game two, Boston is in a bigger, is in, is in a worse position, but I trust that to not occur, which could be off base, but that's where I stand. I, I said this before, too. I think that uh, if the teams are playing at their absolute best, I think the Celtics are a little bit better than the Warriors, Jackson. But when it comes to consistency, we've seen throughout the playoffs, the Celtics be very good, very bad. Obviously, those losses that they had, some of them were blows. But I, I think the Warriors, in terms of consistency, and obviously with championship experience, having Draymond, Clay, and Steph there, I think that might be a factor in their series. Because, I, I mean, again, I, I'm taking, like, the, the kind of weird – non-committal approach to this. I'm like, well, it's going to go six or seven. I just don't know who the hell is going to win the series. Uh, wrap it up on this. Getting back to the Sixers, Jackson, looking at how deep the Celtics are, the Warriors are. Like, you, you look at this, you, you got, you know, we, we talk about Tatum, Jalen Brown, Al Horford, Marcus Smart, Defensive Player of the Year. They got Robert Williams, Grant Williams, Peyton Pritchard, all these guys coming off the bench that can do it. Derek White was sensational in game one. Then you look at the Warriors, right? You got... Obviously, the big three that I mentioned, we've seen Andrew Wiggins play really well. They can get guys like Otto Porter coming off the bench playing playing pretty good. Who knows? You know, Gary Payton, Jordan Poole, obviously a scorer. When you watch those two teams play, Jackson, how far behind do you think the Sixers are in terms of being at that championship level? Yeah, right now I think they're 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 pretty well behind. I think you you mentioned all these different guys on both teams, right? That were playable and positively impactful in the NBA Finals versus the amount of guys on the Sixers roster in the second round of the NBA playoffs who were, you know, positively impactful and reliable. You're going, you got about six to seven, maybe eight on each of these teams versus like by those last few games in this heat series, you had four, three, best. So I think you're, you're a ways off. It's going to require Harden to get back to like that top 10, top 12 tier at worst. Um, it's going to, it's going to require Maxi to be, you know, the, you know, take another step forward and get to that borderline all-star territory, which I think he absolutely can, but you know, that's still a big, that's still a big gap to navigate. It's going to require Tobias Harris to be the guy he was through uh, you know, a round and a half rather than, you know, the last few games of the series. Um, it's going to, it's going to put onus on Daryl Moore and company to make really shrewd, you know, off-season signs with their limited cap flexibility right now. So um, I think they can get there. I'm not saying they will, but they're definitely not particularly close right now, but I'm not by any means like, like extinguishing the flames of any chance, but they, they got to really nail a bunch of different things, whether it's player development or player signings. And, 
and whatnot. And, and so, yeah, they're, they're not that close, but I also think you're ideally you would, I didn't mention like Joel getting back to MVP form versus, you know, where he was, you know, with all the injuries by the end of those, by the end of their playoff, by the end of their playoff run. So um, they can get there, but it's going to require kind of acing basically every move between now and October, mid-October of this year. Yeah, there's a lot of work to, to be done. And, and that's what I've noticed watching these two teams play. And obviously we saw my, what Miami did. And, and again, Joel's injury obviously had an impact on what happened in that series in terms of not being available the first two games. And after that, it was pretty much, well, even Stevens, you know, until games, games or what was even Stevens, it was 2-2 uh, once he got back in. But I mean, again, looking at that, we talked about Danny Green, Shake Milton in the beginning. Are those guys people you are confident are going to step up in the playoffs? All that stuff is what Daryl Morey has to figure out. Otherwise, he's going to waste the prime of Joel Embiid, going to waste the last couple of remaining good years, whatever we get out of James Harden. And I don't think anybody in Philly is going to be okay with that. Uh, Jackson, let's wrap things up there. I want to thank you for taking the time out to join me. Always fun talking hoops with you and enjoy the rest of the finals. Yeah, you too. Appreciate having me on. All right, that's Jackson Frank. You can check out his work at Liberty Ballers. Also does some work uh, around at Basketball News, a ton of other outlets as well. Don't forget to check him out. Uh, very knowledgeable when it comes to the game and we're very happy to have him as a part of our team at Liberty Ballers. That'll do it for this episode. I'll be back on Thursday. Going to be talking with Ricky O'Donnell. We'll do a deep dive on some of the options available for the Sixers uh, coming up at number 23, depending if they keep the pick or not. Also have a good friend of mine, Trevor Lane from Lakers Nation coming on with me. We'll talk some NBA finals, do a recap for you for game three of the Celtics and Warriors, which is coming up later today. As I mentioned, Jackson and I recording this episode on a Wednesday. And as always, don't forget, subscribe to Liberty Ballers Podcast Network. You know where you can catch us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you name it, we are there.